I'm really excited to be able to take a few moments and share with you. So many of you know and remember that we are in the midst of a sermon series that we have titled Wanted, Dead, or Alive. And so we have, <clears throat> we have spent the first two parts of this sermon series traveling through the story of King Saul. And King Saul has really been setting us up and getting us ready to get to right here this morning. And so we're starting today where we've been trying to get to all along. I think to properly understand the true nature and the potency of the story of David, we have to understand who his predecessor was and what their relationship looked like and how the personal and corporate dynamics impacted the story. And that's going to make more sense in just a moment. But just a quick refresher for you since we've been through the Easter holiday, since we last discussed this topic, is in part one, we discussed how Saul was selected. Israel wanted a king, and God said, if you want a king, you're going to get everything that comes along with that. And so God selected Saul. So Saul was a nobody. He was the low man on the totem pole, but God finds him. And he gives Saul everything that he needs to succeed. And so particularly, especially, God anointed Saul. It, God transformed Saul's heart. And then God secured Saul's kingship against those who were not on board to follow Saul. And so Saul had every reason to succeed. And when he assumed the crown and when he assumed the throne, Saul had no real obstacles, particularly from within the nation of Israel. How I many you know that's a pretty good deal? That one day you're chasing daddy's donkeys, and then just a month later you're king over an entire country. Sounds like a nice episode of American Idol to me. <clears throat> but how many know that God will bless you, but he won't balance your checkbook for you? God will transform your heart, but only you can steward your heart. And so what we learned in part two is that Saul had a great start. Just because something starts good don't mean that it's going to end good. I should say it's not guaranteed that it will end well, even if God is involved. And so Saul was selected and he was made king, but we found that Saul's story ended in his suicide. What a epic, tragic failure. It's a tragic story, perhaps one of the saddest stories in all of the Old Testament. And we see that Saul, if he had, a, if he had to come back and tell the story, there's really no one that he can point his finger at and blame for his failure except himself. So I'm going to say it one more time, that God can transform your heart, but only you can steward it. Saul failed to steward his own heart, and so he became prideful, and it cost him not just his life, but the life of his sons, the life of his dynasty, the, his, the, the family that he had worked to create. It was all lost in an afternoon. Saul's pride caused him to forget who God was to him and that it was God who raised him up and would keep him. We're going to talk some more about that in just a moment. Now, if we can, we're going to enter David into the story. Do you remember that when Saul failed to obey God and he didn't repent, 
the prophet Samuel shows up to confront the king. And what is one of the things that Samuel says to Saul? Saul, this day God has torn the kingdom from you and he has given it to your neighbor. God's got somebody, Saul, that's better than you. It don't matter how bad you are. There's always somebody out there that's better than you are. We'll save that for another day. It wasn't long after that day that Samuel confronted Saul that this young man named David enters the scene. So it was not long after Saul was rejected by God that he sends Samuel to go find and anoint David. David was a humble shepherd over just a few sheep. So he had a lowly assignment, but he had the heart of a king. Because he was willing to risk his life against a lion and a bear for his father's sheep. He had enough respect and honor and appreciation for his father Jesse that he was willing to risk his life for just a few sheep. I don't know about you, I've never met a sheep I'm going to risk my life for. Not one time. And you haven't either. Such boldness and such courage. But if you'll kill a lion and a bear with your bare hands, I doubt that you're going to be too intimidated when it comes time to face a giant. And I just need to take a small pastoral sidestep here. It was so difficult for your pastor to make the choice to not preach about David and Goliath. It is hands down one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, but I had to restrain myself to stay focused on our objective. But here's what I'd actually like to do is just before the battle of David and Goliath, I want us to pick up our story about David right there. And so in 1 Samuel, if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 27 through 30. And so here's the scene. The Philistines and the Israelites are in battle array. Both are up on the hilltop and they run down to the valley to do battle in the valley. But the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, have this giant. His name is Goliath. He's a big old boy. And the scripture says that from the time he was a youth, he had trained in war. So before the nation of Sparta ever became what we are familiar with as a warrior culture, Goliath had taken on warrior culture and warrior mentality from being a young man. So he had big, heavy armor and big shield and It says that his spear was like a weaver's beam. That means to me and you, it's huge. And all it to die, just let one of your best come down here and face me, and whoever wins gets to rule over the other. He's a bad dude. And it scared and intimidated the nation of Israel. So King Saul, head and shoulders above every man in Israel, Tall and strong, handsome, command presence. He's hiding in his tent with the rest of his men. 
I mean, you know, I wouldn't have fought Goliath on his terms. If I'd have been King Saul, I'd have been like, let's get 50 of us together and let's run down there and whip him. He can't kill all of us. That sounds like a typical little man right there, don't it? I can't take you by myself, but I'll get three or four of my buddies and we'll whip you. King David, or young David, at this time, he's bringing a cart of food for his brothers. And if I may just be so bold, a bribe for their commander. So we feed the men and you feed their officer. And David arrives on the scene and he sees Philistine, uh, this Philistine down in the valley mocking the armies of God. And he starts asking around, what's going on down there? And I love his first question. What happens for the guy that kills him? Listen, you a bad dude. You either really bad and nobody knows it or you are delusional. If you are five foot seven and wiry, and you're thinking, what happens if I kill him? And so David is asking this question, and his brothers walk by. Picking up in verse 27. Now Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard when David was speaking to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David and he said why did you come down here and with who have you left them few sheep out in the woods I know your pride and the insolence of your heart for you have come down here just to see a battle look at your neighbor and say projection isn't it amazing that prideful people telling the other guy they're the one that prideful I'm to chaps my hide I am telling you what sticks in my craw and look at how David responded. What have I done now? Is there not a reason for me to be asking? Can I interpret that for you? When he says, is there not a cause? Here's what David is saying. Well, y'all ain't down there fighting him. What do you mean I come to see a battle? I ain't seen nothing except y'all on a big camping trip with all your buddies. Because y'all are up there in the tent and the giants down there making fun of everybody. What do you, what do you mean is there not a, there's not a reason to be asking what happens? You so bad, Eliab, why ain't you down there fighting him? <laughs> you know you'd have said that and a lot more if your brother would have bowed up on you like that. <clears throat> Lord, I ask that you help me to teach and preach today. Lord, we open our hearts to the truth of your word. Lord, I ask that you do in us what you did in your servant David all those thousands of years ago. And that you get us ready for everything that you've called us to do. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you, Daniel. And so the reason why I have told you this brief excerpt, and I've we want to shine a spotlight on this interaction between David and his oldest brother Eliab is because it reveals the nature and the family setting that David grew up in. And so they're treating David nasty. And then David's frustration, David is quick on the gun. He didn't say, oh, you're right, brother. I'm so sorry. He said, what have I done now? Here's what that tells me, that this has been going on like this for some time. You don't blow up in frustration the first time. You blow up in frustration when it's day after day, week after week, month after month, and you go, what, what can I do, Eliab, to make you happy? 
And so I want to make this point to you. It's quite clear. If we had time, we would go through all the examples. But it's quite clear all through Scripture that David lived in constant and consistent rejection from his own family. And so it's difficult if you imagine yourself as David, but it also gives us hope because I know this to be true, that David experienced rejection, and so do we. And so if God can use him in spite of all that, that means God can use me in spite of the things that I've had to endure. And so I want to encourage you, today is going to be a great day for you to take notes. Because I'm just going to be straight with you. Most of this is going to hit you two days from now. Living in constant rejection cripples, condemns, and curses the soul of a person. You are a three-part being. You are a spirit. You have a soul. And you live in a body. Your soul is like a filter or a bridge that connects your flesh suit to the spirit man that lives in what we would say your heart or your soul. And so acceptance is a need that every single person alive has. It doesn't matter if you want to be accepted or you care about being accepted or not. You need acceptance and approval in your life. Every person alive has that need. And I think that we can see with David that he clearly was not getting that. When Samuel came to anoint a new king, they didn't even bring David into the household. And David says himself in Psalms that he was born out of wedlock. Jesse was his daddy, but he didn't have the same mama that Eliab had. So he was the black sheep. He carried shame. He was born, he says himself, I was born in iniquity. And we see that his brothers have just doubled down and carried on. Dad didn't acknowledge him as a son, and so his brothers don't treat him like a brother. And I just said something right there. We'll save parenting class for another day. And so this is how the enemy stops you. If, he, if the enemy could kill you or crush you, he would. But God, the enemy can't stop God, and the truth is he can't stop you either. But here's what he will do. He'll wound you. He'll cripple you. He'll curse you. So that as you try to get where you feel God calling you to get to, you have to go slower than the other guy. You have to take detours that the other guy didn't have. You're going to have to use energy that the other guy doesn't have to use because you're wounded. And so we see that human iniquity and human sin has been at work in David's life, just like it has been anybody else's. One of the great tragedies of your life would be that if you arrive at your destiny and your purpose, but you are so wounded that rather than succeed in your calling, you forfeit your calling. We've taken two weeks to look at a man who was called and anointed and transformed, but he sabotaged his own life. The story of Saul should put a healthy fear of God in all of us. That just because God has selected us, picked us, called us, and anointed us doesn't mean that when you arrive where you're supposed to arrive, that everything will go rosy. But I want to remind you of something. 
you are called. But those that have hurt you are not the ones who called you. God picked David anyway, knowing that David's home life and his family environment was dysfunctional, to say it politely. But God doesn't ask permission on who he picks, and he doesn't ask why. He knows why. And so I need to tell some people in this room today that your parents gave birth to you, but God is who selects, assigns, and processes you. Because the prophet Samuel said just earlier in the story that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God can look inside of you and see a king or a queen when even your brothers, even your parents can't see that within you. God sees things that people don't see. Oh, I need to encourage somebody right there just a moment if I can. If that is true, then that means God sees things in you that even you don't see. Because the scripture says that he knew me in my mother's womb and that he formed me while I was even inside of my mother. I need to encourage somebody today that he knew you before you knew you. Say that fast ten times. He knew you before you knew you. So he sees things in you that even you don't see. God didn't ask your parents Your siblings, he didn't ask your auntie, and he for sure didn't ask crazy unk what it is that he wanted to call you to do. That is for himself and himself alone. He shares it with those who ask. The fact that we experience rejection from people, and oftentimes the people that we are closest to, But that we experience acceptance from God means that he sees things that no one else can see. And so I would say this, that when it comes to sheep, when it comes to giants, and when it comes to kings, you can't allow your family to be your God. Because Eliab wouldn't risk his life for daddy's sheep. He wouldn't risk his life to fight a giant. That means if we put a crown on his head, he almost certainly would not risk his life for a country. There's some people here today that you may feel like a shepherd watching a few sheep. You may feel like an errand boy sent to carry meat and cheese to those that are fighting a battle. You may feel that you've lived the entirety of your life in insignificance. I need you to hear me today. You cannot let the words of other people become your God. Because I want to remind you that those who curse you didn't call you. Those who reject you can't redeem you. And those who hurt you can't heal you. No matter who you are and no matter what you are called to do, you will always need God in your life. There are some things that you can't make yourself into. If you want to fly high and go far, 
you will have to give the Lord permission to work in your life. And so as much as it pains me, we're just going to fly right over, and we all know that David kills Goliath. And so because of this tremendous victory where the little shepherd boy puts down the giant, cuts his head off with his own sword, look at your neighbor and say, ultimate shame. Get your head cut off with your own sword. Sorry, Goliath, you picked the wrong team. When they go to fetch David after the battle, David's in his own tent. I'm glad that you don't know or I don't know, but cutting off heads is bloody work. So David's in his tent, blood everywhere, and Goliath's head hanging in the tent. And I could just see him sitting there eating a piece of beef jerky with that big sword laid on his shoulder saying, I wish somebody would come in this tent with a bad attitude because I would sort that out for you real quick. Listen, you give the little man a little bit of victory and he will strut like a peacock and he will crow like a rooster. Speaking for the folks that got little man syndrome, if I would have been David that day, I wouldn't have been sitting in my tent. I'd have been walking laps out in front of it saying, who wants a piece of this? So they come and get David and they're like, look, this little guy, he's going places. We need him to help serve King Saul. So he, he packs up his gear and they're all going back into the city together. And so David instantly finds himself in the palace. That alone's a sermon. We'll save that one for another day. So here's what happens. David begins serving Saul. And from day one, Saul is jealous and afraid. Can I tell you something? That jealousy is preemptive fear. We respond from jealousy because we're afraid. So if I'm jealous over someone's success... I'm afraid that people won't see me and respect me the same way that they do them. If someone's prettier than me, I'm afraid that I'll be less than if they are great. Fear is driven from a poverty mentality, not just of money in your pocket, but a poverty of soul. A poverty spirit of life drives fear, and fear drives jealousy. Saul was appointed, he's anointed, he's the king, he's handsome. And guess what? They were singing for Saul too when they came into the city. But what does he say? Lord, they're making a big deal out of David. The only thing left is if they just make him king. For being such a big deal, you sure are being awfully petty. And it's amazing to me how Saul goes from jealousy to murder like that. And so we know that a, a distressing spirit from the Lord comes on Saul. Can't nobody distress you like the Lord. You think the enemy distresses you? You let God distress you. My Lord. The only thing that would give Saul peace is the song that David would play for Saul when he was tormented. So eventually, Saul, in his anger, the worship ain't doing it anymore. And so he throws a spear and he says, I'm going to pin David to the wall. David ducks it. So David escapes the first time. And then David does to me something I can't explain. It's the dumbest thing I've ever read in Scripture. He, uh, he falls in love with Saul's daughter. 
it's the, uh, what are you thinking, man? I don't care how, she, how good she looking. Her daddy already tried to murder you once, and you want to marry that? Crazy. Look at your wife if you got her here and say, I love you like David. Is there any men in here feel like the father-in-law tried to murder you a few times? You thought, he might not have actually tried, but if he'd get away with it, he probably would. I felt that way a few times. I probably would have tried to murder me too if I'd have come around trying to get my daughter. My Lord. So then Saul tries to arrange a scheme and says, I'm going to let him marry my daughter, but I'm going to send him on a suicide mission. But David wins. He triumphs. And so he's promoted again. Every time Saul tries to kill him, David still gets promoted. That's another sermon. Then the third and final time, Saul finally just arranges a conspiracy where other people will try to go and kill David. And so Jonathan, Saul's son, and David had become best friends. It says from day one, their hearts were knitted together. They were brothers from different mothers. Saul's son, Jonathan, gets word about this plot. And he gives David a warning. David, you got to get out of town. Dad is going to kill you. And so imagine, if you will, being David. Saul, I fought the battle that you wouldn't fight. I went down there and fought the enemy that you should have been fighting. And I got the victory for you so that you can stay king. If I was David, I'd feel like I fought the battle. You should give me the crown. But no, David is a man of honor. The king is the king. And then Saul, when you're the one in torment because of your rebellion and your pride and your delusion, I'm the one that come in and play the harp. I pour out my worship life on your behalf so that you can have some peace. And then you're going to throw spears at me? And then you sent me on a suicide mission to marry your daughter. And I barely escaped with my life. And then you try to arrange and get her to play a part to see me killed. I wouldn't go on the run from Saul. I'd be waiting around the corner for that dude. And when he came out of the bathroom one morning, I'm going to show you how to throw a spear, old boy. That's how me and you would feel. But he goes on the run. If I was David, what can I do to make you happy, Saul? I don't know about you, but isn't it interesting how Saul responds to David the same way that David's brothers respond? Nothing is ever good enough. And if I was David, I would feel the same way. Saul keep trying to kill me. I'd be like, what have I done now, Saul? I am single-handedly propping up your kingdom for you. And then I have to go on the run and lose who I personally believe was David's only friend at that time in his life. David knows that the fourth time Saul tries to kill me, he's not going to fail. He'll get me this time. So he becomes an outlaw. And so when David goes on the run that day, David has moved away from all of his family. He's lost his post as worship leader. He's lost his command in the military over soldiers. He's lost the favor of the king, and he's become separated from his wife, and then he has to lose his best friend. 
it looks like that David has lost it all. But God is preparing David to rule it all. Oh, see, I just said something right there. There's a lot of us in life that every time something goes bad, we fall into a pit of despair. And I come to talk to some people today that feel like all through your life it feels like I've dropped one lower level, one, one level lower. I've just gone down and down and down. Why can't I get a win? Where is my W? But right when it feels like you've lost it all, God has an amazing way of preparing you to rule it all. And so if you remember when I opened this series, I left you on a cliffhanger that what was, there is one difference between Saul and David. Saul was a good guy. He never made a mess that we can, that we can make any sense of. We have, no lot, we have no record of him committing affairs, stealing money, stealing money. The only time he wanted to murder was David, and he was unsuccessful, and he was kind of uh, uncommittal about it there in the beginning. And so other than that, Saul was a great guy. Uh, he never made any messes. David was a disaster in a lot of ways. David, he would rather, he'd just soon kill you as talk to you. More about that later. He never met a woman that he didn't like. His family was a mess. His kids are a mess. Committed adultery. Got a woman pregnant on the side and tried to cover it up. He couldn't cover it up. And when he failed in that, he killed one of his best friends. He's a mess. Well, what's the difference? Why does God show up and reject Saul, but he'll come to David and says, that's a man after my own heart. It don't add up. So I read this story and I go, if I'm looking at two men and two different kings, what's the difference? How come God rejects him, but he picks him? How did David, in all of his mess, become a man that God picked time and time again? There's one difference in their story. One was appointed and the other was processed. So many times what we want as Jesus followers, we want an American Idol outcome. You sing three songs, people who are already famous clap real big, they make you real pretty, put the lights on you, give you a few vocal lessons, and then they hand you a record deal and you're set. That is not the way that God works. That is the way that men works. God gave Saul everything, but Saul wasn't processed. Saul went from a nobody to being king in a month. David was a nobody, and he was anointed, but it took him years to become king. Let me remind you of something. God doesn't manufacture things. He grows them. The way of men is that we find someone we like. We look at someone's outward appearance, someone's talent. We look at how good someone talks, but we don't look. We're incapable of judging the content of their character. And so we promote people instead of processing them, and it costs them their life. God loves you enough to process you because when he gets you to where he has for you to go, he don't want you to ruin it. Because God will ask you to do things that if you try to do them your way in your strength, it will kill you. God has called you to stand in places and to steward over things that if you don't learn to do it with Him, to rest in His faithfulness and to trust in His power, you will lose your life. 
Everybody wants a crown, but nobody wants to be processed. Because you can give a man a gold crown and silk robes, but it won't give you a brave heart. It won't give you a wise soul. It won't give you integrous character, and it won't give you honest lips. But God's process will. God's process for you is an invitation that more often than not feels like rejection from men. Selah. If you allow man's approval to dictate to you whether or not you're walking with God, you will be led astray at every turn. People are blind at worst and we are fickle at best, when it comes to detecting what God is doing in someone else's life. And so when David has to go on the run that day, Jonathan comes and gives him a warning. It says there's much tears and that David was particularly broken because he's the one about to have to run. David's going to go back and sit at the king's table and eat the king's food. But David has to run into the wilderness like a wild animal. I would argue this, that that was when God's processing for David jumped up a notch. A lot of times God's processing is us being stripped of the things that we trust in, the things that we love and the things that we like. Why? Why does God work this way? Because as I've already told you, He doesn't manufacture things, He grows them. But God has to process you uniquely because you are not like the other guy. You are not like the other gal. God has made you different. He has separated you and he has set you apart for his own purposes. If God doesn't process you, you'll never become the man or woman that he's called you to be. So we have to remember that God doesn't work through entitlement. The way of men is entitlement. What did Saul say to Jonathan? Jonathan, quit being David's friend. Don't you know that if you support him, it's going to cost you your kingdom? What was Saul thinking? I want my son to inherit. That's the practice of entitlement. You're, you're entitled to it because you're born into it. Can I let you know something? You're not entitled to money or success. I'm about to say something that's going to be a tough pill to swallow. You're also not entitled because you were born into a life of depression, anger, or victimhood. See, we want to point our finger at rich people and go, they're entitled. But we rarely will look ourselves in the mirror and point a finger and go, I've become entitled to being a victim because mama was a victim. God doesn't work through entitlement. Entitlement is the pattern of man's iniquity. God doesn't work through entitlement. What does he work through? He works through equipping. Before God equips you, he prepares you. Preparation is the foundation of a house filled with anointings, callings, and purpose. 
Those things are your equipping. They're the things that God gives you. But He wants to build the house on a firm foundation. Before you wear the crown of a king, you need the heart of a king. God's processing for your life is required for preparation. Preparation is learning to manage, to steward, and to keep your own soul. I wonder how many destinies have been lost in the bottomless pit of broken souls. There's about 7 billion people running around on this planet. Every one of them God has called and made them for a specific purpose. The reason why the world is in a mess is not because of governments or businessmen. The reason why the world is in a mess is because people don't want to or are incapable of becoming the person that God has called them to be. I would say this, the endorsement of your life is God's process for you. If you've never been through processing, then I would say you're not super close to God using you. So a good question that we all need to be able to answer is, have I said yes to God's processing for my life? Notice what I just said. I didn't say, have I said yes to dad's processing for my life? Have I said yes to mother's processing for my life? Do my orders come from family or do they come from God? Do I follow my friends or do I follow the voice of the Holy Spirit? If you find yourself like David... And you may feel like this, I've lost so much. Why do they not love me? I have fought for them, why don't they appreciate me? Why does no one else see good things in me? Why can't my family just accept me? Why can't my friends just accept me? Why can't my boss, why can't the people I go to church with just accept me. And I don't know about you, but if I was David and I had to go outlaw all by myself, I'd have been saying this, where are my friends at? Because when I'm cutting heads off of giants, I got people singing in the street, playing the tambourine, people's wanting to come by and visit. I hadn't done nothing wrong. I've kept, I've walked integrous before God. I've walked integrous before my king. All I've done is risk my life for the people. And where are the people who will risk their life for me? You want to talk about feeling rejected? If I was David, and David was gracious, if my friend Jonathan came to me and said, Hey, Daddy's going to kill you, I'd been like, I appreciate the warning, but are you going to come help me? I need help. Some of you may have felt like this, where is, my, where is a true friend that will run with me out into the desert? 
I need to say this for some spouses in the room. Sometimes in God's process, and I've watched my wife have to go through journeys that it hurts my heart and it inspires my faith all at the same time. I've watched this woman right here walk through things that I can't explain why. I have had to watch her walk through pain and disappointment that's difficult for me to impress upon you with words. And I go into my own prayer closet going, God, why is, this the, why is this the path for her? Because I watch her go through things. And I know even as a husband sometimes, I feel like I'm helpless. I wonder if there's any spouses in the room that you've watched even your husband or wife go through God's process and go, I don't know if I know what to do for you. All I know to do is keep showing up saying, I love you, I'm for you, I am praying with you, I'm encouraging you, but I, ain't, I can't fix you. I can't fix that. I can't fix the situations that you're having to face. I'm taking a detour right there on purpose because some of you may wonder, why does my wife seem a little distant? Or why does my husband seem a little distant? God may be doing some process in, the, in them that you're not their God, he's their God. The best thing you can do is say, baby, I'm for you, I'm with you. And if you lay on the couch and cry for six months, I'm going to be right there beside you. And when you get up and you got the victory, I'm right behind you saying, God will do it, won't he? Because I'm with you and I'm for you. I'm not that woman's God and I'm not her healer, I'm her husband. There's some wives in the room that God's working processing in your men. He don't need, he's already got one mama. And all the wives know she's part of the problem. So don't be his mama. Be his wife. There's lots of men that I know that have done great things. They were out running the streets after dark, but their wives were on bended knee calling their names in prayer. I believe this, that a lot of great men in life, we see and God's done great things, but what few people are able to recognize is that that man had a praying wife. That she didn't know what to do. She knew, I can't tell him nothing. He's stubborn. When he gets his mind fixed on it, if he wants that, he's going to go buy it. It don't matter how much we don't need to buy it, he's going to do it anyway. But what do you do? You go into your prayer closet and you call his name and you beating on the doors of heaven saying, God, I need you to be with Jordan. I need you to be with Trey. I need you to be with Tony. And God is faithful. There's some parents in the room that you need to take a step back from your adult children. And go, baby, we love you. I've done the best I know how to do. It's time for you to pick yourself up and pick your head up. And it's time for you to find your own prayer life. Some of you mamas would be doing your babies a favor to look at them and go, you're going to have to start praying for yourself. Because I'm praying as hard as I know to pray and I don't know that it's working that good. You're going to have to take responsibility for you. I'm not going to be your God anymore. Cheap love for your children is when you become their God. Real love comes from God and it flows from Him. The best parent is one that knows. There's sometimes i got to back up and put them in God's hands. Because let me tell you something, Mom and Daddy. God loves them more than you do. I know you can't imagine that. I know we can't comprehend that. I can't either. One of mine is sitting right there, and I can't imagine somebody loving that boy more than me. But guess what? God does. 
God can do for him what I will never be able to do. And sometimes you've got to back up and say, God, I'm getting out of the way. There's some aunties and some uncles in this room that at the next family gathering, when the kids is talking about what they're going to do with their life, you need to be quiet. The scripture says that the opinions of men bring no life. There's some opinionated people in the room. You need to take your mouth off of what you're looking at, a few sheep and a little shepherd boy. You need to take your opinions off of them. And you need to go to your prayer closet for your nieces and for your nephews. And you need to say, God, they a mess. I helped post bail for them last weekend. But God, they need you. And they might be a mess, but God, that's between you and them. God, show me how can I love them, how can I support them, how can I cheer them on? Can I let you in on a secret? You make a terrible God. You can be a great person, but you'll still make a terrible God. Sometimes why God can't work in the lives of those that we love is because we're in the way. And God can't get a word in because you won't be quiet long enough to let him talk. And your hurtful opinions, even though they may come from a genuine place, they can't go home and hear from God because they're going home hurt over what you've said. It takes them four days to get over your opinions. Now, you know our deal. I love you enough. I'm going to tell you the truth. So we as God's people don't need to judge God's processing in other people's life. We need to be praying, how do I support it? And if you're a person who has not had process, you need to quit running. And you need to quit hiding. You need to quit trying to convince your family to follow you. Remember I said, them that hurts you can't heal you. It's too strong medicine, I know. There's some of those you want your friend Jonathan. You love them. Man, we came up together. We're from the same street. We're from the same neighborhood. But they ain't called to what you're called to. So they're not going to go with you. You may tell you something I've learned about serving God. It's the people that you want the most are the ones you will have to learn to do without. Because if God let you have them the way that you want them, you would wind up serving them instead of serving Him. There's some people you've been begging, God, let them go with me. They're so good, I can see it in them. They're not going to go. Some people, God puts his hand and says, nope, that's not for right now. So what do we do when we feel stripped and we feel forced to turn out off? My band will come, please. What do we do? The feeling of processing is pain. I come this morning to share an uncomfortable truth with you. When men promote you, you go up. But when God promotes you, you go down. David was promoted several times by men. 
because he was successful. But God's promotion for David was, you're about to become an outlaw. You're going lower. How do I know this? You're taking one example, preacher. How do I know that's true? Because there's this man named Jesus that as you watch his life, the difficulty increased at every step. Jesus' greatest promotion was that cross. He was never winning more glory for his king and his father than when he hung there on the tree. And so we see in a messianic king like David that God's promotion means you've got to go down. A wise man once told me when I became a pastor, he said, the name of the game is pain management. Let me tell you something. Does that mean that you have to be Rambo and the more volts that the Russians shock you with, you just grit your teeth even harder? I'm not going to quit. Your grit will always fail. But God's grace is always sufficient. Some of us have not said yes to purpose because we're afraid of the pain that's involved. More money, more problems. You want to go up in life? You got to take the pain. You want more impact? Got to be willing to face more pain. And I'm not just talking about your business or your ministry, although that may be true. You, if you want to be a more effective parent, what's going to be required? More pain. You want to be a more effective spouse? What's required? More pain. I struggled over whether to bring you to this point today because it's not popular, but it is the truth. Remember something. You're not called to be an observer. You're called to be a son or a daughter. And here's what that means if God is your father. That at some point, God is going to expect and require maturity from you. If my son is 25 years old and I'm still having to tell him to brush his teeth, something went wrong. I use this only as an analogy to illustrate that. If that is true, then he's living so far below the purpose that he has, the potential that he has. I come to speak to some sons and daughters in this room today that God is calling you higher. There's more for you. You've been on the bench too long. You've been a spectator too long. He's calling you into the game. He's calling you to live. He's calling you out from the baggage. He's calling you out from the kitchen. He's calling you out from the shadows. And he's saying, come and let me process you. Let me turn you into something that you can't think, dream, or imagine. And you need to know this. When you say yes to God's process, there's not a paycheck waiting around the corner. But he does a work in your heart. And I want you to hear what I'm about to say to you. I'm going to be leaving you on cliffhangers these next few weeks. When you say yes to God's process, you're willing to become an outlaw. Don't go breaking laws. Y'all know what I'm saying. If you're willing to become an outlaw and say yes to God's process, and if you're not afraid of the rejection of men, 
then God will transform you in your heart into a person that is entirely and altogether different. Here is the gift of God's processing. If men give you a crown, they'll take it from you. If men give you money, they can take it from you. If you live on man's approval and man's acceptance, if you live from one moment of celebration to another, you will find yourself trapped in an eternal cycle of performing for people. And guess what? It will never be enough. And if at any moment you fail to meet the fickle expectations of men, they will take their approval from you just like that. If you don't believe me, pull out Google and just Google Joe Biden's approval rating. When that dude took office, highest ever. And in three years, the lowest ever. Why? People are fickle. They will love you one minute and they will spit you out the next. What in the world does that have to do with God's process? And you hear me, we're going to end right here. Don't you miss this statement. Because what God gives you when he processes you, can't nobody take from you. Because in your life, the crowns will come and go. The praise will come and go. Some days you'll win the battle and other days you will have to run for your life. But when you've learned how to find God and know God for yourself, you will always have all the peace, all the approval. all the acceptance that you will ever need and they will be like trees planted by rivers of living water please hear my heart cry today don't run from God run to him and if he's waiting for you in a desert you lay everything else down and run because God's grace is sufficient I don't want you to stand up today I just want you to receive so there's two people I want to pray for today if you're in this room today and you say, I've been running from the process because I'm afraid of the rejection of people, I'm afraid of the disappointment of people, but I want to say yes, I want to run. If that's you, I want to pray for you. And there's another person in here that the process is taking a little longer than you thought. There's a person that you feel stripped. I don't know what else it is that I can lose. God, I need some help. This same man wrote, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and them that run into it are saved. You might be right in the middle of your desert. You might be right in the middle of your outlaw season. And God told me this morning, I want you to pray for people and remind them that I am their strong tower. 
So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in here today, no one's looking at you except for me. If you're in here today and you say, I'm one of those two people, I want you to wave at me. Come on, keep waving. That's your sign of surrender. That's your sign of need. Keep waving. That's not just for me. That's for you and the Lord. So now you just hold your hand in the air as a receiving posture. Lord, you see and you know each of your sons and your daughters. Lord, you see the purpose and the plan that is alive within them. And so, Lord, I pray today supernatural strength and courage for those that we've resisted, we've kicked against the goat. I've not wanted to go down that path because I don't want the rejection, the disapproval, the disappointment. God, you know it's difficult. But, Lord, I pray today that your grace is sufficient and that the approval of God is better than the approval of men. So Lord, I pray for each one that has struggled. Do I go after God or do I stay with what's familiar? Lord, I declare over them that you are leading them and drawing them to yourself. And Lord, for those that are in, that are in the room that say this, I don't know what else I can lose. Lord, I declare over them that you are the light of their life, the lover of their soul, and the lifter of their head. And Lord, I speak a word over all those that are in the midst of process, and I declare victory is in the Lord. And that their help is coming to them from over the hill. And that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And that as they run into it, as they run into their prayer closet, as they run into their secret place, that God, you will protect them and guide them, supply them, meet their every need. Lord, we call you great we call you good and we call you faithful I wonder will the gate church help me put your hands together today and give God glory for his goodness in our lives